All right, good morning. Hymn 947, 947 stanzas 1 and 4. All glory be to God on high, and thanks for all his favor. No harm can touch or terrify a child of God forever. God shows his good and gracious will and grants his peace the world to fill. All strife at last has ended. O Holy Spirit, our delight, and source of consolation. Protect us from the devil's might through Jesus our salvation. By his death upon a tree, has rescued us from misery. To this we hold forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, grant to your faithful people pardon and peace, that they may be cleansed from all their sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1b. Let's speak this together. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If is, of course, conditional. Should anyone commit sin, it's not the end of the world. And this, of course, anyone. Who is the anyone who might commit a sin? Right, everyone. All people will commit sin. Two. If anyone commits sin, we, who's that? Okay, yes, the body of Christ. So all man will commit sin, but we, that is the body of Christ, have an advocate with the Father, um, which is not to say that the unbeliever doesn't have an advocate, or rather to say that uh, Christ does not will to be the advocate for the unbeliever. The question is, do you want Christ to be your advocate or not? Do you want to go with your public defender or do you want to 
try the case yourself? Do you, do you want to be your own defendant? That's the question. The advocate's available to everyone, but not all can take it. Correct. The advocate is available for all, but not all will take. What is an advocate? Yeah, he doesn't take your place, but he speaks for you. In, in that sense, he's sort of like a mediator, one who goes between two parties. The advocate will speak on your behalf and will advocate for you. So you, this is how it works. You commit a sin, and then the father says, you have to die, because the consequence for sin is always death. But your advocate then stands between the two of you and says, now hold on. Hold on, don't kill him for that sin, and he speaks well of you before the heavenly throne. The advocate speaks on your behalf. Again, sort of, if we want to use this imagery of the courtroom, uh, the advocate is your public defender, but your public defender is a really good public defender, uh, and if you have decided, yes, this is the normal way that things go are, is I receive a public defender and you just let it happen the way it's supposed to happen, then you get a public defender who fights for you and you actually win the case. You're guaranteed to win. But the other option that you can take, so that's the way of life. If we want to talk in terms of the language of the didache, there's the way of life, the way of death. The way of life is letting it happen. Just letting it happen the way it's supposed to happen, which is here's, here is your appointed lawyer, they'll take care of you, just let it happen. Well, the way of death is saying, I don't want it to happen the way it's supposed to happen. I'll do it myself. I can do a better job than this person. Uh, and then you go to trial and you defend yourself and you end up looking like an idiot because you don't know what you're doing. And of course, you're found guilty because you don't have anybody to speak for you. It's just you. And you're not all that likable and you're not all that smart. So it's better to have somebody else who is a lot more likable and a lot more smart speak for you. And that is your advocate, who is, of course, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is important that he has this title, uh, Jesus Christ the righteous, that could be capitalized. Why does it matter that it is Jesus Christ the righteous? Well, yes, he is. But why don't we call him Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then? Why is it Jesus Christ, the righteous? Yes. Okay, but what does that do? There's a, why doesn't it just say Jesus Christ, the crucified? If, or, or Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? I mean, you're, you're saying correct things about Jesus, but you're not quite hitting why it is Jesus Christ the righteous. He lived a perfect life. Be okay, now you're starting to get warmer. He was, he was sinless, he was righteous, which is, this says that he is righteous, but it doesn't say Jesus Christ is righteous or Jesus Christ a righteous. It says Jesus Christ... Because he's the only one. Because he's the only one! Because the only one who's righteous is Jesus. 
So if your advocate is going to be the righteous one, how is that going to affect you in the eyes of the Father? If your advocate is the righteous one, and you know that this is the best public defender you could ever have, and you're going to get off, what does that, how does that affect you? What does it make you? Use the language of the verse. You are righteous. If, you're, if Jesus Christ is the righteous one and he is your advocate, then when he advocates for you, he makes you righteous too. You are righteous by virtue of Christ. He is the righteous one and all, all righteousness comes from him and is bestowed upon you. So that when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you for who you are. He sees you for who you are made to be in Christ, which is why you always get off in that court of law. And that's why the Father is not the one who comes back to judge, but the Son, because the Father has already judged. The Father judged you guilty in the Son. When Christ was crucified and he drank the cup of the wrath of God, and we say that he drank our cup, he took God's wrath for us. That's what it really, I mean, it really means what we say it means, that he takes the wrath that you deserved, which wasn't just a little bit of the wrath or a piece of the wrath, but all of it. The Father doesn't have any more wrath to dispense because he's already dispensed all the wrath. Every single drop of it has gone into that cup and was given to Christ to drink. He's got none left. So when the Father looks at you, he declares you righteous because Christ has declared you righteous, because Christ has advocated for you. But then your advocate will turn around and be the one to look at you and say, are you really what I have made you be? That's the question. That's why Christ is the one who judges, not the Father. The Father's already judged. He's not going to come back and judge again. But the Son will, because he is your advocate. Okay? Yes. Okay. God the Father was a judge, okay? So, and he and was, and you're saying then, until Jesus... Let's address this question in the meat and potatoes of Bible class, because okay. it's going it, to, otherwise, okay. we won't have time for Sunday school. But hold on to it, and if I forget it, r remind me, raise your hand. Okay, let's speak this again. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father... Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, uh, what sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins that we know and feel in our hearts. Okay. Um, what does it mean to plead guilty of all sins? That's a good question. Well, it's yeah. Recognizing the original sin and the whole gamut of Yes. So recognizing original sin. Um, where do we confess sin? And we can call this general confession too. Uh, theolo in, you know, in theological terms, this would be general confession, just confessing that you are a sinner and confessing uh, even the things that you're not aware of. That's a general confession. Where is the general confession in the Lord's, in, yeah, in the Lord's prayer? 
Exactly, forgive us our trespasses. Well, which trespasses? Well, it doesn't say, it just says trespasses. Any trespasses, the ones that I know, the ones that I don't know, all of it, forgive all of my trespasses. Now, here's a bigger question. Where else do you make regularly a general confession? Liturgy. Exactly, in the liturgy. It, be, it always begins, the confession and absolution is the introduction to the main service proper. You don't come in until your sins have been forgiven. So you make a confession. Oh, almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, have, conf uh, have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. That whole confession, like where is the very specific thing in that confession? There isn't one. It's general. It's not about what Jim Kruger What's, what specific sins Jim Kruger committed? You know, we don't, we don't, you don't have to sign it and then come in and say, okay, well, today the confession is made by Jim Kruger. Okay, Jim, go ahead and confess all of your specific things. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. We're all confessing exactly the same thing because it applies generally uh, because you're all sinners. So we make the general confession, which is a confession of things that we know and a lot of things that we don't know. So that's our general confession. We're guilty of all sins. And what do we deserve because of our guilt for all sins? Death, death. yeah, exactly. The consequence for sin is always death, no exceptions. Uh, but now, the catechism, when it talks about confession, is not talking about general confession. This, this whole three questions and three answers on confession and absolution is about <laughs> private confession and absolution, which is when you come to the pastor and you confess simply to the Lord um, in the hearing of the pastor and receive absolution. So before the pastor, you should confess only those sins that you know and feel in your heart, which is to say this, that particularly burdensome sins require particularly acute absolution. Um, it's really easy to go to confession and say, yeah, 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 generally I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a blah, 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 blah. And you, you confess that, and you know that you're, what you're confessing is true, but there are specific things that really trouble you, and then when the pastor says generally, yeah, your sins are forgiven, uh, it's really easy to think, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't really say this thing, though. I just kind of said generally. And, and it's really easy to have a conscience that is burdened because you feel like the confession wasn't enough your confession, and you also feel like the absolution wasn't specifically enough your absolution. Because the other problem is that you can always say, well, yeah, um, Lisa, I'm sure, feels very forgiven, and I'm sure that uh, those words were meant for her, but me, Bruce, who, I don't know, because I got a lot of sins. I don't know if that general absolution really covers me. Um, it might just cover Lisa. And then, you, then you're in the service, and you feel bad, like, well, I don't know. It's easy to write the general absolution off as applying to some people, but really not to me because my sins are pretty bad and, and what I speak from the book doesn't really seem to cover my sins. Well, then come to private confession and absolution and say those, confess those sins and then receive a personal absolution. Your name here, I forgive you. I mean, you can't really run away from it when the Lord stares you right in the face and says, hey, you, yeah, I'm talking to you. You're a forgiven guy. You can't really, oh, no, oh, me? No, you must have been talking to the other guy. Well, there's no one else here. It's just you, just you and the Lord. 
It's you, guy. You're forgiven. That's the way that it works. So when there are particularly burdensome sins, they require a particularly acute absolution. It's like the difference between shooting with a shotgun and a sniper rifle. They're both going to get the job done, but one of them's going to be a little more clean about it. You know, uh, you want that absolution to hit you right exactly where it needs to be, like a surgeon's scalpel, right at the source. Now, you can always go to private confession and absolution and confess generally there, too, and receive a, a private absolution, which is uh, often a very great comfort. And if you're afraid to come and confess specific sins, well, then come to confession and absolution and just confess generally for a while. I mean, it's not going to hurt you, uh, but the absolution is still the same, and it is for you. Any questions about that? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Sure. You can go to Sunday school, kids. No. I mean, the question is, in, in days past, communion took place less frequently, but there were more requirements to get it. Now, communion takes place with great frequency, and we, you don't have to jump through a thousand hoops to get it. And, and the question around that is, are we becoming lax? The, the only way that I can answer that is from my pastoral perspective as the pastor of this congregation. So I can't answer your we as in synod, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. But I can answer your we from the perspective of me being the pastor here and knowing my people, my sheep, in this specific congregation to which I am called. The short answer is, have we become lax? Absolutely not. Uh, Am I going to allow anyone to come to the altar? No. Do I care if you are one of my own sheep? I do. In fact, I do to the degree that sometimes I might care enough to actually ask you not to receive the sacrament if I know that there are things going on. 
One example is that typically, this is just a general example, so don't think that I'm you know, talking about specific individuals here. Typically, because the church frowns upon divorce with such a great fervency, and the, you know, has the church gotten lax about divorce? Yes. But because the church does not approve of divorce, and because your pastor always encourages you not to go through or to seek a divorce, you know, with, with few exceptions, and those exceptions typically being cases of complete abandonment, um, in the case of a divorce, I will institute typically a minor ban from the sacrament. While you are in the process of a divorce, I will institute a minor ban and I will not let you come to the sacrament. Why? Because I love you so much and that's a bad thing and I don't want you to be in the middle of a bad thing and also coming to get the sacrament, which is going to turn into a bad thing. Or, or the case of a couple that's living together that is outside of marriage. Am I going to give them the sacrament? No. Why? Because these two examples are just two of many examples of living in an, what we would say is open sin. You're, it's, an, it's an open and a public sin. And so there are, there are times when even my own members I will ask not to commune for the same reason that I would you know, not have a stranger commune because it's out of love. So in that sense, yes, the sacrament is, you know, we still continue to hold it with the same degree of importance. Now, as to the frequency, the frequency is not de what determines the importance of the sacrament. In fact, my argument is that if it's really that important to you, you should be having it more, not less. That's, a, that's an attitude from the 1800s when the Lutherans said, well, this is such a holy thing, we ought to make sure that we're really, really, really ready for it, and we ought to make sure we put all kinds of barriers up to test us to make sure that we're ready to receive it because we want to make sure we're holy. And the church's whole position from history has been, no, you are holy because we tell you that you're holy because you're baptized, you're brought in. Why, why would you try to make yourself more holy than what Jesus has made you? So from the standpoint of, you know, like the catechism explanation, who receives this sacrament worthily? Does it say anything about the person who fills out the card or the person who goes and seeks confession and absolution or the person who does this or the person who does that? No. Who receives this sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. If you want to fast, that's great. If you want to undergo other kinds of spiritual disciplines, that's great. In fact, I encourage you to do that. And if you want to and you don't know how, talk to me and I'll help you with it. But that's not the thing that gets you to the sacrament. That person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. How do you receive the sacrament rightly and worthily? if you say amen to Jesus. So why don't I have you fill out cards? B because you are filling out cards, you just don't know it. When I hold up the body and the blood and I say, the peace of the Lord be with you always, and you say, amen, that's check one on a card. Because I've just said, this is the body and blood of Christ and it's going to give you peace. And you have said, yes, I believe that and I want it. So you've already said, check one, I'm filling out the first part of the card. 
And then when you come up to the altar, I have a second safeguard when I say the body of Christ and then wait for you to say amen. And then when you say amen, I say, oh, now I know that he, now I know. That's my examination of you. I examine you every single week. You know, the old, like CFW Walther says that people ought to be examined annually, I think. Everybody in the congregation needs to come and sit down with the pastor and have the pastor give you a big, long examination and a test to make sure that you believe everything you're supposed to believe. And i got to test you every single year. And I say, I test you every single week. I don't have to sit down and give you a whole test. Is this the body and blood or isn't it? The body of Christ? Amen. Given for, well, then you've, just, then you've just registered for communion. You've just made your... You just passed your exam. If I put it in your mouth, you've already passed your examination. See? So we're not taking it any less seriously. Heck, if <clears throat> the, the day that you know that we have stopped taking it seriously is the day that I don't kneel at the altar when it's the body and the blood, and the day I start giving it to you like this. Um, body of Christ given for you. Body of Christ given for you. Body of Christ given for you. When I start doing that, and when I, st and when I stop telling you that you should approach it with reverence, when I stop encouraging you to say amen, when I stop telling you how important that stuff is, now that is when we start becoming lax. But are we lax now simply because we don't have you fill out a piece of paper? No. And in fact, I encourage you to go seek private confession and absolution, and if that's something you want to do, then do it. Call me anytime and we'll do it. But we also have a service that begins with confession and absolution, and that's the purpose of that is as congregations started to get bigger, pastors couldn't meet privately with every single person anymore. So then we said, okay, well, we're going to start the service. That's why I say it's an introduction. We'll introduce the service by having this general private confession and, or general confession and absolution so that we know we've covered all our bases because everybody who was here just confessed and was absolved. That's the point of the whole service doesn't mean that you shouldn't come to private confession and absolution, and in fact, it's always offered on Sundays from 8.30 to 9. So if you really want to do it even before you go to the sacrament, you may. Um, but we're not, any, we're not lax about it. It's, it's just different. And the other thing is this. Um, if you ever go... Now, this is, this is your home, and I'm your father. So when my kids come here for supper... I don't have to ask you who you are, and we don't have to sit around the table giving introductions, because I know you. If I didn't know my kids, I mean, what kind of a father would I be? But when you go to another church, should you assume going to that church that you are allowed to commune and simply hide in the back and then walk up to the altar? No. Anytime you go to another church, you should make a point of finding an elder or finding the pastor and introducing yourself and telling them who you are and that you would like to commune and then wait for that pastor to give you an examination. That's the kind of thing. You know, I know you and I know your confession and I, I examine you in a special way every single week. Now, another pastor doesn't know you. If you go out to Nebraska to, I don't know, uh, Clint Poppy's church, you go to visit Clint Pastor Poppy. Pastor Poppy doesn't know who you are. And Pastor Poppy's not just going to give you the sacrament because you're there. Um, and if, you, if we have visitors here that I don't know, I am not going to commune them just because they say they want it. That's like buying my daughter a toy just because she says she wants it. And that is a slippery slope. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> 
right? I don't, give, I don't dispense things because you want them. I dispense them because you need them. So it's like medicine. You know, uh, Saoirse had a cold and we were giving her medicine. Well, then she didn't need the medicine, but she kept asking for the medicine because she liked the way it tasted. Well, I'm not going to just give her the medicine because she wants it because if you're just going into it with no need and the only thing is I like it the way it tastes and I want to be a part of the group that takes the medicine, well, then the medicine isn't medicine to you. It's poison. Medicine, apart from the, you know, the directions or the prescription, isn't medicine. It's poison. So... Um, Somebody, some stranger who comes to me, I will examine them in that sort of old way to make sure that they're in fellowship with the altar, just like you should uh, permit yourself to be examined anytime you go to a church that is not your church with a pastor that is not your pastor. So that is where that examination continues to live, but only in the sense that people who don't know you need to, to make sure that they know you before they feed you. Does that all make sense? Okay. Yeah, we're we're definitely not lax. Well, you know, like I say, times change. We all know that. But as young child go about, uh, children, anyone that was not confirmed, I shouldn't say was not allowed to go up with the family or Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. And. Yes, and there's some precedent for that. Just in the old church, they, they would kick anybody out who wasn't actually taking the sacrament. There's a part of the service where the deacon would start yelling, the doors, the doors, and everybody would get up and leave that wasn't taking the sacrament, and they would close the doors. So nobody was even allowed in. So in some sense, sure, I understand the practice, but you know, my opinion is, and this is, this is an opinion. My opinion is, you come to the altar because Christ is at the altar. And so the spiritual reality is now, you might hunger and thirst for him and aren't quite ready for him or whatever, but I might not give his body and blood to you at the altar, but I will give him to you, whether that's in the word of his blessing or in his actual flesh and blood. But... I really don't like seeing families that are split apart, like families where uh, one parent is a member and the other person isn't, and then they just, the person who's not a member sits down. I don't, I don't like that, because if you have a family and your family is together in church, your family ought to be doing the whole church together, which means that if one of you comes up to the altar, all of you should come up to the altar. Doesn't mean I'm gonna commune at all of you, but if all of you are there, you all will leave with something. And so that's, and the, there's a catechetical aspect to that too. When little kids come to the altar, they see what's happening and they hear the pastor saying the body of Christ and they learn that stuff. And then you can, you can ask a four-year-old, what is that? And they'll tell you that's Jesus' real body and blood, but it's because they're right up there. They're seeing it ha happen and they're being a part of it all. And for kids, especially, they have to be in they have to be permitted to be included in that. 
that they, they have to be able to witness the sacrament and its distribution. They have to be right up close to see it, to touch it, to smell it. You know, they have to see how it works from the front end, not just waiting in the pew while mom and dad go up. Uh, that's a really important thing. And that's something that helps when you start realizing that confirmation and First Communion aren't really the same thing, and that even according to the explanation of the Catechism, the person who receives the sacrament worthily is the person who is confirmed and has been examined. And No! The person who receives the sacrament worthily is the one who has faith in these words given and shed for you, which means who is the sacrament for? Anyone who has faith in these words given and shed for you. So if a four-year-old comes and says, this is the true body and blood of Jesus from the cross... And the parents say, this is his confession. We want him to have the sacrament. And he says, I want the sacrament because that's Jesus and I want Jesus. And he's been baptized. Who am I to then say, no, you sit in the pew while your parents come up here because you're not old enough. Yet. You know, he who has faith in these words, that is the person who is worthy and well prepared because faith is what receives the sacrament, not reason or intellect or knowledge. Confirmation is an incredibly important thing because it's a continuation of the baptismal education but it isn't the thing that determines whether you are ready to get the body and the blood or not. Actually, that is baptism. If you've been baptized, then you have a birthright, and your birthright is the sacrament, which is another reason I think anybody who is baptized should be coming to the altar, whether they're getting the body and the blood or not, because they're going to leave with something, and, well, they're going to leave with something substantive, first of all, which is, even if you're just getting a blessing, that's something substantive. I mean, you don't, walk, you don't walk away from a blessing of the Lord going, boy, gee, I wish I could have gotten something better. I mean, that's, that's something real and substantive, even just the blessing. But then you also get to leave with, with knowledge and with experience. So if you're not communing, you have the knowledge because you're being right there in the middle of it. And this is for children and for uh, adults who are not receiving the sacrament yet. They, they see what's going on there. They're a part of what's going on there. And they, they know and learn more fervently about what's happening there and about what is truly offered. And you get to see up close. You know, there's, there's really no replacement for seeing what happens up close when like pastor drops a host. Because you can sort of see, but when people are standing or kneeling there, they block the way and you can't. But when you're right up there and so, you know, he, drop, he drops a host and all of a sudden everything stops and he gets down on his hands and knees and he eats it up off the floor. I mean, that's a weird thing to see somebody do. And in the church, anytime something weird happens, your first reaction shouldn't be, well, that was kind of weird. Your first reaction should be, well, now why did that happen? Because everything in church happens for a reason, especially, especially the weird stuff. <laughs> I have to tell you, the last time the choir sang and we had Saoirse, when we were getting ready to go up for communion and she went communion, this is my dad's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's a very high compliment. That's a very high compliment. Well, it is. You know, so... That's a big, long answer. No, we're not lax. Things, things are slightly different, but even as they're slightly different, they're also exactly the same. Um, and, yeah, if you're not coming up to the altar, which you all are, um, but encourage people that aren't to come up to the altar, even if it's just for a blessing. That's really important. 
and, and that's something I think is very important because what is the, you know, where is our orbit? If, if all of us are little planets or little moons and this congregation is a planet, who do we orbit? What do we orbit? Mm -hmm. I would have given you bonus points if you had said the sun. <laughs> it's true. So we're, we're orbiting the sun, which is in one sense Christ who is the light and also Christ who is the son of God. But where is Christ really found? You know, where is, for you baptized faithful Christians, where is the substance of Christ? In the body and the blood. It's in the Eucharist. Everything in the divine service, the entire liturgy is ordered in kind of a big spiral to point you to one place and to one place only, which is the Eucharist, the service of the sacrament. Come and get it. Which is why it's kind of silly to have, you know, if you're not having communion, then to do that whole service, but then cut out the communion part. Because it's everything about communion and then not having the one thing that... It's like going to an ice cream shop and having all of the menu be about ice cream, and having all the advertisement be about ice cream, and it's a building that's shaped like a big ice cream cone, and you go there and you say, I'd like an ice cream cone, please, and they say, oh, we don't have ice cream here, we only serve cheeseburgers. Well then, what's the point? Why the advertising? Why the colors? Why the menu? If you're not gonna give me the goods that you're promising to give me, then why should I bother coming? That's the, the entire liturgy is geared around giving you the body and the blood. And we as Christians and as a congregation orbit the body and blood because we're in orbit around Jesus. If Jesus isn't the center, then nothing matters at all. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Well, that's such a loaded... Why are they going to an LCMS church? And if they are going to an LCMS church and he is ELCA, why doesn't he just say, well, let's figure out what the difference is and get it to the point where I can commune? And his father is an ELCA pastor. Oh. At least his mother isn't. Because they ordain women. It was a joke. I've got your back, Bob. <laughs> uh, yeah, poof. I don't know. That's, that's one of those things where it's like, is communion your right? I want to give it to everybody who comes. I just can't. If it were up to me, I would. See, if it were up to me, I'd become an ELCA pastor. And the reason that I say that is because my feelings and my emotions would be the things that dictate my doctrine and my practice. I don't want to exclude anybody, so I'm going to change the doctrine of the church so that I don't exclude anybody. But the problem is, I, it, I am not pastor of opinions. I am a pastor of Christ, which then means that when there is a question of what should I do, the thing that informs what I do is not my opinions, but Christ. And Christ is, wait for it, 
exclusive. Oh no, that's a bad word in modern society that somebody would be exclusive because you're supposed to be inclusive, right? This is the biggest joke in the whole world. When you drive through a city and you see the Methodist church or the ELCH or whatever it is, and what do they have on their little sign right out front, their little marquee? Everyone welcome. Oh, give me a darn break. Everybody is welcome to come to any church. It isn't a question of who's welcome to come to church. The question is, who is welcome to partake of the body and blood of Christ? And I am not the one who determines who is worthy. I'm not the one who set the criteria. Jesus set the criteria. And then he told me, now you make sure you're going to be my steward. You deal with my accounts faithfully. Now, some people are going to be unjust stewards and fudge some things here and there. And I've, I'm sure that I've fudged some things too. But one thing I refuse to fudge and, and, and will never knowingly fudge is the account of who comes here and takes their medicine. You know, if you've ever been to the hospital, or if you've worked in the hospital, or if you've visited someone in the hospital, how many checks and double checks and triple checks do they have for the simplest of things? Do you want to get a shot? Okay, how many barcodes do they need to scan? Seems like they scan about a thousand barcodes for you to get one shot. How about blood? How, if you're going to receive blood? Oh my goodness, they have to be so careful about all of that. Well, if they're going to be careful and scan all the barcodes for all that medical stuff, why shouldn't we also make sure that we're careful about the medicine we give. It's not about inclusivity. It's about what's right. Anybody is welcome here and anybody can receive a blessing here, but not anyone can receive the sacrament here. And there are some people, even adults who come here, like adult converts to the faith, who aren't ready to receive the sacrament yet. Like, uh, I'll just use Jan Lewis as an example. Because when she first started coming here and then started going through the catechumenate, she was, she was what was considered an adult convert to the faith. So she was baptized and she was brought in. Did she get the Eucharist right away? No, she didn't. Because there were, <clears throat> with, in the case of adult converts, there are peri there's a period of instruction that you need to undergo before you're really ready for that. Did I tell her to you know, get the heck out of Dodge? Well, you're baptized, but I don't want to see you back here until you're ready to get the supper. No. Come here, and I even told her, come to the altar. You're not, I can't give you the body and blood yet, but could you come to the altar here and I'll give you a blessing? See, anybody can come here and receive a blessing, but the question is, can you receive the body and blood? Do you have a prescription for the medicine, and can I fulfill that prescription for you? And the answer to that is, no, I, I can't always do that for you, even though you're always welcome. And it doesn't mean that I don't want to give it to you. Why do I encourage people to go through the catechumenate if we have adults in the congregation that aren't communing? Come through the, why do I tell them to do it? Because I want to commune them. I want to commune everybody, but my feelings aren't the thing that dictates. My feelings and emotions don't dictate the practice of the church. There are things in place, and all the things that are in place are for good reason, but my emotions are the thing that are irrational. When I say, oh, I really want to do X, Y, and Z, and I know that it's going against what the church teaches, but oh, I really, really want to do it because it sure would make people feel better. You know how many things that I could do that would make people feel nice but would be really wrong? 
Right. I mean, think about that for a second. There are so many things that I could do differently and I could have done differently in the past that would have made people feel nice and, be, and would have been you know, pleasing to people. And emotionally, I want to. But I have a collar and the collar is tight. And the collar is from a master that is not my emotions or feelings. And I cover myself up for you so that you know that when I speak, it is not my emotions or my feelings, which isn't to say that I don't love you and I don't care about you, but it's to say that I, I love you and I care about you in such a special way. I love you and I care about you the way that my Lord loves you and cares about you. And that means that for some things, yes, we, we will actually be exclusive. But do you accuse the pharmacy of being exclusive because you want an opiate and they won't give it to you? It's the same thing. Jessica and Bill. I have a question on that just a little bit. <laughs> very, very good. No, that's okay. I saw your hand, but I just chose not to call upon you because I was on a roll. So, okay, so For, forgive me. Yeah. So if you're openly, openly sinning, mm -hmm. you're not supposed to come to the altar, uh, I mean, and I guess I can read all through my divorce. I mean, help, help. No, and that's a, that's a pastoral thing. So again, if, if we rewind and and I don't know any of the particulars of that. So I'm just going to say, we'll, we'll talk about a general divorce. And the general divorce in the modern culture is, we don't love each other anymore. We don't get along, X, Y, and Z. Now, I may, that's why I said there are some exceptions, because like for spousal abuse, I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, well, you're going to get divorced because your husband beat you? Well, shame on you. You should have stayed in that marriage. God doesn't, you know, well... Boy, I don't really know that I could say that. But, and, and then the case where, well, you, um, husbands or wives just get up and leave out of the blue. One day you're married and you love each other, and the next they wake up and they say, I hate you, I don't want to be married anymore, and they just leave you. So there are some cases where, you know, where there's abuse or abandonment, and those are different issues. But generally speaking, a divorce is, there's no such thing as a no-fault divorce. Each person is at fault in some way, and just are doing this. And in, in those kinds of things, that's, you know, divorce is never an acceptable or a pretty thing, but in those cases, generally, it's, it's bad. So for cases like that, because you're going through a divorce and because, you know, there was sort of not a desire from one or both parties to admit to the other that they were wrong and to seek forgiveness, which is common. I mean, what do you want me to do? I'm the pastor, so you want to come to me and you want to talk to me about your divorce, and then you know exactly what I'm going to say about your divorce, which is, let's look at it from the spiritual side. I'm not a counselor, I'm a pastor. So you can come to me and you can talk to me, but everything I tell you is going to be from the theological and the spiritual point of view. 
So when you come and talk to me and you want to complain about your husband or your husband wants to complain about you and, the, and you talk about, well, he doesn't do this and I don't, and well, she doesn't do this, and blah, 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 blah. That's, and that's always what it ends up being in these general cases. Uh, the first thing that I always notice is, yeah, but it's all about you. Why, do you, why are you angry at your husband because he doesn't clean up his mess? Well, because I'm the one that has to clean it up then. Okay, but then it's something about you. And why are you angry at her because she's always nagging you about cleaning up your clothes? Well, because her voice is annoying and I want to have some peace. Ah, so it's all about you. So you've got two parties then that are both living in sin, that refuse to repent, that refuse to resolve and reconcile with one another, refuse in many cases to even be kind and civil to one another, and then they want to come to the altar and receive the body and blood of Christ with repentant sinners while they are openly living in a state of sinful unrepentance. Does that make sense? Open, an open or a public... So any kind of a public sin is a sin that is not behind a closed door. Something everybody knows about. Uh, so like... And everybody, and you, you get put in the slammer, and no. it and it makes it into the papers. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I would say yes. If you come to church and you're hungover, I'd say you're pretty repentant because I don't know that I'd want to come to church hungover. Okay, no, I'm and I. I no, I understand. Oh, any, so there's a difference between an open sin and a public sin. A public sin is you going out to the bar and getting drunk and throwing in the slammer and sleeping it off and then coming to church and it made it in the paper and everybody just kind of... <laughs> or some of the stories I've heard about some of the people, you know, driving too quickly, crashing cars, spending nights in the slammers. Pastor knows a lot about a lot of you. Uh, at, you know, pastor's always got his ear to the ground. <laughs> Okay. But, so, you know, stuff like that, you know, so if somebody tells me, oh yeah, I, you know, one of our, one of our friendly parishioners drove, a, drove his father's car too quickly and outran a police car, and then you think, hmm, well, that was a, that was a public sin, because everybody knows that story and laughs about it now. By the way, the clock's broken, so when it's about 10.15, maybe someone just let me know. Um, but anyway, so that's a public sin. That's a sin that everybody just knows about. Can you repent of a public sin? Well, sure, yeah. In most cases, your public sin should also re receive some kind of a public repentance. And in many cases, that's like, it can take the form of some kind of public penance. How do you show that you're really sorry for your sin in, in, in the society? Well, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my time or I'll serve my, my, my community hours or whatever it is, you know. So that's a public sin, just one that's really big and everyone knows about. Now, an open sin, something that is, a, 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 when you are in an, an, an open sin, which, which implies that it's also an, an unrepentant sin, it's a sin that, that you continue to live in, that is a continual part of your life, something that you are not sorry about, something that when the pastor tells you you're doing it wrong, you tell the pastor, yeah, you can go to hell. You don't get to tell me how to live my life. If that is your response to the pastor when the pastor comes to you and says, this is a sin, you need to not do this, then that sin is, you're in, a, in an open and an unrepentant sin. You're not really Right, there is no repentance. Is the body and blood of Christ for the unrepentant, recalcitrant sinner? 
No, it isn't. Which is why in states like that, I can't commune you no matter how much I want to because that's actual poison for you. So, this is my last question. Yep. It, it depends. It, I mean, it all depends. There's no one answer I can give you. The general answer is, in the eyes of God, sin is sin. So, you know, all sin is mortal in that sense, that all sin will merit death, and all sin is something that you need to repent of. Well, like in the Catechism, what, what sins do we confess before God? Well, before God, we plead guilty of all sins, even the ones we're not aware of, because sin is sin, and sin is always bad for us, and it's always... Now, in, in the civil realm, yes, there is a hierarchy of sins. Um, and if you want proof of that, just look at the legal system. If I steal a package of bubble gum, am I going to be punished the same way as if I steal a Lamborghini? No, because there, there, you know, there is a rank of sins. Now, when the church looks at sin, the church doesn't look at sin the way that the legal system does, even though the church submits to the legal system. So if you do get busted for something and have to go spend time in the clink. <clears throat> Do you like my cool, young, hip lingo? Uh, so if you, if you have to go spend some time, I am not going to write a letter saying, hey, now God forgave her. You better let her out, doggone it, or you're going to feel my wrath. But I will come and visit you while you're locked up. Okay? So, you know, we submit, we, we recognize the legal system, and we recognize that there are consequences for actions. Now, within the church, the question is, uh, you know, the degree to which your sin is affecting you. So, really, really, really horrible public sins, you know, open sins of addiction, like you are a, you are an alcoholic. So, you come to church hungover one Sunday, yes, your, your sins will be forgiven for that, but, and obviously you regret it, but uh, I had a professor once who said, you, know what, you want to know what hell is like? Have you ever been hungover? <laughs> That's a little taste of hell. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, if you are a perpetual drunk, and everybody knows it too, well, then you are all, you're, you're living in a public and an unrepentant sin. And... This is why if I know that every Saturday night you're going out and getting slammed and then coming to church the next day saying, well, God will forgive me, then I will probably ban you from the sacrament because at that point it's not good for you because you are living in an unrepentant sin. Because what does repentance mean? It doesn't mean feeling sorry for your sins. Repentance, that's contrition. Repentance is something different. Repentance means turning away from your sin, walking the other direction. So if you're not doing that, you're unrepentant. So the best example for the modern times is the couple that lives together outside of marriage. Is cohabitation a sin? Yes or no? Yes, it is, for many reasons. It's, it's a very, very bad thing for you to do. Um, and I say that as a loving father. I don't, I don't want people to do it. It's so bad for them. In body and in mind and in soul. It is very bad. Sets all kinds of bad examples, sets bad precedents, sets the soul in a bad place. So if you're living together and I come and I tell you, this is wrong, you need to, you need to separate until you're married, and you say, no, I'm going to keep doing this. 
Well, there you go. You don't care that it's a sin and you're going to keep on doing it. That is open and it is unrepentant. And I can't give you the sacrament of God if you're living in that open, unrepentant sin. Now, if, you, now if, you come, if I come to you and you say, oh, I didn't realize cohabitation. I'm so sorry, Pastor. And yes, we'll find different places. And then can we also meet with you for private confession and absolution? We want to put all this behind us. Then do I ban you from... No, because there's repentance there. You, do you see? So the hierarchy of sin in the church is not so much about the quality of the sin... It's about the, the repentance from the sin. If you are a repentant sinner, come. If you are an impenitent sinner, if you are unrepentant, if you are recalcitrant, if your heart is hard, and anybody who tries to tell you that what you're doing is wrong can go to hell and rot for all you care, the, you know, there's a big difference between the two. Mm-hmm. You don't take communion until that's resolved. And a while back, you said that's when you need it the most. Right, and you do. But here, but I also said that if in your heart, when you when you examine yourself and you say, "Well, I know I need to reconcile," and and you feel bad about that, I really shouldn't have said that. And here I am at church, boy, I just feel terrible, and I know I need to go fix that. If that's the way that you think, if you know that that's wrong, should you commune? Yes, you should. And where's the place where you're going to learn even more deeply and be strengthened to go and resolve with your neighbor and love them? Right there at the altar, the body and blood of Christ. C.S. Lewis, I partake of the Eucharist to learn to love the people that I hate. Okay? But if you are sitting in church saying to yourself, boy, I hate so-and-so's guts, and I'm going to wait for them to come grovel to me, they need to get this right. I can't blah, 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 blah. If that's the way you think, are you repentant? No. no. And if that is how you feel, then you should stay away. That's the difference. So you had a fight with your neighbor and you didn't have time to, time to reconcile. Okay. Well, are you repentant of the sin? Well, sure. Then come to the sacrament, get Jesus. A little bit of Jesus isn't going to hurt you in that case. In fact, it's actually what you really need because that's going to beef you up and make you all the better to help you love your neighbor and go reconcile with your neighbor. You know, if you stay away from the sacrament every time you have an issue with anybody, even if you're feeling bad about it and you're repentant of it, you're never going to get Jesus and you're actually going to hurt yourself because you're trying so hard to be holy that you're staying away from the thing that's going to make you holy. I'm trying so hard to get better that I'm going to stay away from my medicine. <laughs> it, it just doesn't work. It's sort of an, you know, a bass-ackwards way of doing things. Bill. Back to the comment that you made about the LCMS and, and, and medicine and stuff like that. <clears throat> How many, how many minutes have I got? Three minutes. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I can do that. I can do it okay. You got two minutes now. See, there's no interruption. In my seven plus decades in, the, in society, in the church, and in the community, I have seen not dozens of people leave church. And now I'm not talking about the Lutheran Church, Missouri City. Any church, dozens, maybe hundreds of people leave churches. 
seldom, seldom did I ever see anybody leave a church and go to another church that they knew the confessions of the church they left or the confessions of the church they went to. They would say, common in the Lutheran Church of Southern Synod is, well, I couldn't take communion or my brother-in-law couldn't take communion or something. But that probably wasn't the underlying reason. Seldom is the real reason out there. And, and it upsets me to see people then use flippant things like, well, I didn't feel comfortable in that church or something like that, and have no idea of the confessions of the church they're going to. A friend of mine was talking about he, big supporter of right to life. I mean, of, of abortion. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, Bill, your church, your church stands behind uh, or against abortion. Yeah, but that's my church. That's not my confession. Well, then what are you doing in that church if your church's confession is different than yours? And that's what I see all the time. People don't know the, the Episcopal priest that uh, Maryville told Pastor Mays that the Episcopal church believed in uh, the real presence. And Pastor Mays said, well, Westminster Accords, which you signed, says that you believe it's just representative. He said, no, that's not so, and I'll prove it to you. And he goes and looks and comes back and says, no, I was wrong. There's a priest who doesn't even know the confession of his own church. I'm done. <laughs> I, I agree with everything you said, and I don't know that I could say it better or have anything to add. I, well, Prosper, you hold your temper better than I can. Well, not without a collar. <laughs> One thing, Gail. You asked about the judge. All you have to do is look at the creeds. Back cover of the hymnal. Apostles' Creed. Second article. Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Nicene Creed. Sits at the right hand of Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. So the teaching of the church through the entire history of the church has always been that Jesus is the one who comes to judge. In fact, there are, there are icons that you can see of the return of Christ and typically he'll come, he sort of sits in a sphere like this and he has a scepter and an incense ball, which are the signs of majesty. He has a crown, he sits um, and there's a rainbow above him, which is the sign of promise and he comes to judge. The, the father has, has already judged. So. It's the crucifixion. He judges Jesus for everything. He doesn't have any more judging to do, but then the, Jesus comes to judge because he says, okay, now, anybody who's with me, yeah, we're all good to go. So he comes to gather his own, which is really part of what it means for him to judge. He comes to gather his own, and anybody that says, I don't want to be with you, he says, okay, well, then you get to, then you get to cover the cost of your own meal ticket. And they say, that's what we wanted. And he says, well, okay. And then that's that. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So God the Father as the judge, if that's what we would, would be prior to the God the Father judges sin by killing it. And so God the Father has deemed you to be righteous because of Christ. But the, the place where that happens is at the crucifixion. So when Paul says you're baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, what that means is what God the Father thinks of Jesus is what he thinks of you. Because you're baptized into Jesus' death, which means that sin is killed, the old self is killed, and then you're also baptized 
into his resurrection, which means that he's raised up. So when the Father looks at you, what does he see on the outside? He sees Jesus on the outside because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ in baptism. And when he looks, you know, say, ah, quick, to just make sure that you're not a disguise. Uh, what does he see on the inside? He sees Jesus on the inside because Jesus is putting himself inside of you to, to transform you into a little Christ's. So when he looks at you, all he sees is Jesus, uh, not you, because now you're covered in Jesus, in his death, you're baptized into his death and resurrection. So he judges you at the crucifixion and in the resurrection, because that's where your baptism takes you. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Hey, good class. We'll see you at the altar. <laughs>